Our morning passage for this lesson is from Ephesians, the second chapter, and if you will stand for the reading of God's Word. And not only the second, but in the fourth, I'm not going to read the second, third, and fourth chapters. That will take care of the rest of the time. But from the second chapter of Ephesians, beginning at verse 8, for by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is a gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. And then over to the fourth chapter, beginning at verse 20. But that is not the way you learn Christ, assuming that you have heard about him and were taught in him, as the truth is in Jesus, to put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires, and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds, and to put on the new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. And with that, we end the reading of God's word. Let he who has an ear hear what the Spirit is saying to the church, and you may be seated. We have, uh, we're moving into the third section of the Heidelberg Catechism, and if you take your book, which I'm sure you all brought with you, right? <laughs> and you look at the table of contents, always a good place to go, because it gives you an overview of the book. You will notice that there are three parts. The first part talks about our misery, the second part talks about our redemption. Third part talks about our thankfulness. Or if you like alliterations, first part talks about our guilt. Second part talks about grace, God's grace. And the third part talks about our gratitude. Or if you like another alliteration, or even if you don't like another alliteration, the first one talks about our sin. The second one talks about our salvation. The third section talks about our service. And so we're moving into that section, which is going beyond what we have learned about how sinful we are and yet how great a Savior we have into what is the result of all that we have been studying. Section two, actually in the whole thing, deals with our justification. That act of God by which he declares us to be righteous, not because we are righteous, but because of the life, death, and resurrection of his son. And we've said it's an alien righteousness. It's his righteousness given to us. And in some ways it's called to make us aliens in this world because it's a different righteousness. You'll hear this when we get to First Peter. Justification comes, one, recognizing we are sinful, but that the, therefore we need a mediator, which is a kind of a summary of the second section. That mediator has to be grasped by faith. The faith that does that is a faith that is summed up in the Apostles' Creed of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and not only who, he, who God is, but his actions toward us. And finally, how that faith 
is opened to us by the keys of the kingdom, which are, first of all, preaching of the word of God, and second of all, God's discipline. Discipline, let me remind you, is of two types. We usually think of God's discipline as when he gets angry at us and he throws lightning bolts at us and he makes life miserable for us. But that's not what his discipline is. Discipline is primarily training. He spends all of your life training you what it's like to be a child of his. Why? Because there's such a difference between who we are as sinners moving who we are as his adopted children. And then there is a discipline where he takes you through times of trials and difficulties in order to show you what he wants you to do. That's where we ended up. And so now we move into section three, which is going to talk about our sanctification. And the beauty of our sanctification is this is God taking the alien righteousness of God, of Christ, and beginning to apply it to our lives and teaching us how then shall you live as a follower of God, a follower of Christ. Sanctification happens immediately after justification. As soon as you are justified, God begins to sanctify you. In sanctification, you can look at two ways. Sanctify is one that I think this this sound system is working like my computer. It's not working. To be set apart. And God does that immediately. He sets you apart. You are no longer a child of this world. You are a child of his. And then second of all, to reform you. And in some ways, words like reform or you could say rehabilitate or refurbish or words like that are not adequate. Because God, in your sanctification, just doesn't take what you have and make it a little bit better. He takes the old, throws it out, gives you something brand new. Maybe the image is, you've lived all your life in a hut. A dirty, stinking hut. And then you come to Christ, and God says, okay, I am now going to build a palace out of you. A huge Downton Abbey, Westminster Palace that is so beautiful you will not even understand or recognize your old self by the time I get done with you. Okay. So if justification is an act, sanctification is a process. Justification, he declares. Sanctification, he works in all of your life doing what he needs to do in you to make you look more and more like what he has declared you to be when he justified you. So the last part, third part of the catechism in the wisdom of the uh, writers, 
said, okay, let's talk about what it is to be sanctified. And they'll do it by three, th three subjects. One, today and next week, Lord willing, we will talk about good works. What are good works? We introduce it today. Uh, what are the, the, um, uh, the results or what, what do, it, does it look like? And second of all, Next week, we'll take a look at actually what the good works are. And then we go right from there to the Ten Commandments. Obviously, the people of Heidelberg Catechism were not modern evangelicals. Because modern evangelicals like to say, well, the Ten Commandments no longer apply to us. That's Old Testament. No, they said exactly that. What they knew is, is that Jesus never really taught much, if anything, that was new. He simply took the Old Testament and expanded it. If you take a look at the Sermon on the Mount, in that sermon, he touches about every commandment there is. Some explicitly, some implicitly, but he says he basically re reinterprets, reapplies the Ten Commandments. And he does that most of his ministry. You can find it throughout there. So you have this idea that the Ten Commandments teach us how then to live. But I w would also tell you the Ten Commandments teach you a lot about who God is. And if you understand them, you'll see how you have a greater picture of God. Which is one of the th things I hope we do. Second of all, then it goes to prayer, and it ends with a whole section on prayer, basically looking at the Lord's Prayer. Why? You want to know how sanctification primarily comes about? It does come about by the Word, but it's primarily people who pray. The most important practice that you have in your Christian life is not reading the Word, as important as that is. It's praying. Why? Because the life of a sanctified person or a sancti being sanctified is a one of communion with, with God. And prayer is that means by which we commune with God. The fellowship of God. Now we use our Bible because we pray the promises of God. But prayer is so important. And we're going to take a look at the Lord's Prayer, which is our pattern for prayer. They call it the Lord. I don't like calling it the Lord's Prayer because it's not His prayer. He gave it to us. It's the disciples' prayer. Lord's Prayer is John 17. But we're going to take a look at that. Now, that's all for the sake of introduction. What I want to give to you today is five reasons We are called to do good works. And that's in that first question. Number question 86, Lord's Day 32. Since then, we are redeemed from our misery by grace through Christ without any merit of ours. Why must we do good works? Now that first section is reminding us of our justification. 
It also reminds us that he has paid for and redeemed us from all of our sins, past, present, and future. That's why you can run to God when you have done something wrong if you're a Christian because he has already paid the penalty for it. It is finished. It's paid for. All he asks is that let's restore the fellowship we had before you created or you made that sin. And then it goes on to the end. Why must we do good works? If we are justified, why can't we just live the way we want to? Because they're all forgiven. You know how many people like to live that way? They don't necessarily want to have the progression to become more like Christ. As long as I'm saved, as long as I got my ticket for the train to heaven, as long as I'm going to make it, I'll live the way I want to here on earth. You know, and that's, that's somewhat the attitude of uh, Christians. Not all Christians, but some Christians today. So the catechism hits it right off. Why must we do good works? And the answer has five reasons. Because Christ, having redeemed us by his blood, again, you go right back to justification. You go right back to the foundation of why you are a Christian. Not by works, as Paul said. It's not of your own doing. It is a gift of God. Even the faith that you have is a gift of God. Not a result of work so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship. And the first reason is the Holy Spirit. It's the Holy Spirit who in essence in some way justifies you. It's the Holy Spirit who is at work within you before you even knew that there was a Holy Spirit or before you ever knew that you were coming to Christ because he was convicting you of sin. He was reminding you of things that you've done that just sit there in the back of your mind or in your conscience and make you cringe. Uh, I know this is true in my own life. Four, four, no, three or four years before I ever became a Christian, he was the Spirit was telling me, you remember what you did back then? I said, oh, no, don't remind me, don't remind me. <laughs> it was horrible. And it took him three or four years before he did his work. But he did his work. The Holy Spirit works within you, bring you to that place where he gives you the faith so that you believe in Christ and are declared righteous by God, justified. But he doesn't stop there. The same spirit that was in Christ is in you. The same spirit that was in Christ is in you. It was the spirit who conceived Christ in the womb of Mary. It's the same spirit who conceived you to be a child of God. The same spirit who oversaw the early years of Christ from his obedience with well, he didn't, he didn't actively obey to be circumcised. Mom and dad did it for him. But everything he did, and as he grew in wisdom and strength and favor with God and man, this is all the work of the Holy Spirit moving him toward the time when the Spirit would empower him at his baptism. Just as the Spirit empowers God's people in order to be able to accomplish. One of the things we notice that in the Gospels, 
And even Luke, who explored all of Christ's life, you hear nothing of him doing any miracles until, the baptism, until his baptism. Why? Because that's when the Spirit came down upon him and empowered him for the ministry. And you are empowered by the Holy Spirit. And then the Spirit drives him out into the wilderness. Nobody likes wildernesses. And the sense of that word is not the Spirit said, come on, Jesus, let's go for a walk. It is he pushed him out into the wilderness. And there he ministered to him for 40 days, 40 nights. And when the time came to be tempted by Satan, who do you think helped Jesus deal with him? It doesn't say so, but behind the scenes, it was the Holy Spirit. It's the Holy Spirit who led and guided Jesus through his ministry. Why do you go up to Nazareth and not stay down to Jerusalem? Why do you turn water into wine and not just say, oh man, that's too bad, live with it? Because it's the Spirit is always prompting him. The Spirit lives within him and is always doing his work. It's the Holy Spirit who is always not only giving us faith, but taking us through all of life, even those tough times of life, when you are saying, why have you driven me into the desert, Lord? The Spirit is there driving in order that he has something he wants to do in you. That's the discipline. That's the training that God has for you. So the reason you do what do good works is because the Holy Spirit's empowered you. It's given to you. He's, he is... He's uh, compelling you. He's directing you. He's pushing you. You ever get that spirit nudge? You ought to go talk to that person. You ought to make that phone call. You ought not do that. Usually that's where we talk about it. Yeah, you ought not do that. And you know, oh, but I want to. It's so much fun. Yeah, for a short time. It's like eating a lollipop. It's good for a while it's in there, but afterwards, man, you feel it. There is a spirit at work, and the spirit will prompt you to do that which is good. As Paul said to the Ephesians, we are his workmanship. We are God's works of art. We are his poetry. We are his masterpieces. We are his uh, paintings. We are his sculptures. And it is the Spirit who is at work making sure that the end product is gorgeous. Now, you see, you've, you've seen me draw here. You've seen me do things here. And you, you kind of look at it and say, whoa, this guy doesn't know how to put two lines together. <laughs> see, but the Holy Spirit is working in us to make sure we can do exactly what God has created us to be and do. It's a long process. It's a process with, with which we cooperate. Paul said to the Ephesians, work out your salvation in fear and trembling, for it, has, it is God who is at work within you to will and to do his good pleasure. The key phrase there is God who is in you. And we understand when the New Testament says God who is in you, he is talking about the Holy Spirit. 
So first of all, it's the Holy Spirit who is working out God's will within you. And you have to cooperate. But it's always in reaction to what the Spirit is doing. But he is constantly at work. And it reminds us that we are called to obey the Spirit in which, in what he says and what he calls us to do. That's reason one. He renews us by his Holy Spirit after his own image. You want to know what you're going to look like when you're old? You're going to look like Jesus, at least on the inside. Some of us will need a whole lot of work to get anywhere close to there. But on the inside, as you grow and as you are set apart, as you are sanctified, the Holy Spirit is going to make you look more and more like Christ. You're going to act like him. You're going to speak like him. You're going to think like him. And you will fit into the name that he has given to you given to the church in uh, Antioch. You are Christians, which means little Christ. See, I mean, they recognize in the disciples they're just little Jesuses running around. Or you can the other way you can look at it, they're soldiers of Christ. <laughs> yes, sir. Whatever you want. Second reason. Gratitude. Have you ever had anybody do something for you that was so outstanding, so marvelous, so helped you get out of a situation that you can't help but thank them? Uh, in our ministry, we've had this happen numerous times where God has orchestrated someone to come into our life who has helped us at just the right moment. Well, now think about what God has done for you in Christ. Nothing that anybody does to you compares to what God has done to you. And what's your response? Oh, that's okay. I deserve it. No, it's absolute gratitude, thankfulness. It's saying that you are stand in wonder and awe at what God has done for you, and in turn, you will want to show that thankfulness. The Catechism says that with our whole life, we show ourselves thankful to God for his blessing. His blessing. See, gratitude is one of the deepest statements of faith. When you pray and you see a promise of God that deals with that issue, when you pray, you pray, thank you, Lord, that you are going to fulfill this promise for me before the promise is fulfilled. That's gratitude, that's thankfulness, and that's deep faith because you don't see it. You don't know that it's actually going to happen. You don't know when it's going to happen, but you do know that God will fulfill his promises, and therefore you are grateful, you are thankful. On the other hand, you're thankful for when you realize what he has done for you. Whether you've been a Christian a few weeks or a few decades, think back over your life and think how you have seen the Lord at work in your life. 
and things that happen to you or things that have gone to you that have created you to be more and more like Christ. And in, in doing that, your response is gratitude. It's, it's what you ought to have. And so the reason we do good works is we're just grateful. The person who has helped you the most, your response is not only to do thanks, but how can I help you? How can I do something for you? Well, if God has helped you eternally, how can you not want to give and do good works for him? Number three. To glorify, and I probably should put here, just to take away any confusion, to glorify God. The uh, catechism said, and that he be glorified through us. Peter, writing in his first book, talks about us being living stones, a holy people that the chief cornerstone has been rejected, but that chief cornerstone has become the one who is building a, a living cathedral, which is you and I being part of that. And then verse 9 says, But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. As Paul would say to the Colossians, remember your life. There you were. You lived on this side. And this side is the dark side. You were living in darkness. But God in his good mercy transferred you over to the light side, his kingdom. Transferred you from the realm of darkness into the kingdom of Christ. Aren't you glad you're on this side this morning? I could have gone the other way around. Aren't you horrified that you're on this side? This is what the Spirit has done. He's transferred you. And because of that, as Peter would say, we are called to glorify him. We are called to proclaim the excellences of him. You're now God's people. You have received mercy. There is, you are called out of the darkness into the light. And now your life is called to glorify him. And how does that happen? It's the work of the Holy Spirit. Think, of, think about what the Holy Spirit has done. And what you think about when you see the Holy Spirit at work in your life is you see the character of God. You see the person of God. He omnipotently changed you from who you were into a new creation. The old is gone, the new has come. By his own power, he didn't need you to help him. He recreated you. Made you a new creation. He did it omnisciently in his own timing, in his own wisdom, at just the right moment. 
Now, some of you may look back and say, I wish he had done this years before. I look back and say, I wish I had happened when I was 10, 8, 9, not when I was 19, almost 19. But it was the wisdom and the omniscience of God. He said it had to be exactly the correct time. Think of the providence of God at work. That he had to orchestrate things in your life that brought you to the place in which you would recognize you were a sinner and that you were somebody who wanted to be saved. And he orchestrated that. Maybe when you were young and maybe it took uh, going into uh, teenage years, the turbulent teenagers, or even later. But in his providence, he brought you to that place, place in which he caused you to be born from above and he brought you into the kingdom, transferred you. Or think about this, his steadfast love. All the times he was preparing you, part of what he was doing when he was preparing you was showing you who God is. And, and in a sense, calling you. And all the time before you, he changed your life, you're going, nope, nope, time out, time out, oh, come on. It's cold here, I want to go to Florida. You know, you did not want it. And he didn't say after the fifth time you said, no, thank you. He didn't say, well, that's enough. It's his steadfast love that consistently comes toward you. It's the same in your sanctification. In his providence, he is taking you through things to help you understand and be disciplined and help you to want to grow and help you want to be sanctified. In his omniscience, he knows exactly the right thing to do and the right time in which to do it. In his omnipotence, when the time is right, he does it. How often have you rebelled about a teaching in the scriptures? Uh, the one I like is predestination. I mean, we throw up all sorts of red flags. Well, what does it have to do with our free will? What free will? <laughs> what does that mean? That, that I didn't choose Christ? No, you didn't choose Christ. Christ chose you. And people will just butt their heads against this. And then all of a sudden it goes, whoa. You know, the more I've learned, the more I realize it has to be true. And it's the spirit at work within you. How about you've been trained in a certain manner, in a certain way, and somebody is presenting to you a different way from the scriptures, and your first reaction is, no, 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 my mom and dad didn't train the boy that way. And all of a sudden, oh yeah, they're right. I need to change. You see the care of the glory of God and when you see the Spirit working with you're glorifying God. You're proclaiming the excellencies of who He is. That's what the Spirit is doing and that's what your sanctification is. That's what your, your good works are all about. He, our good works make God look great. I mean, just our salvation is enough. But every time 
He helps us and he changes us and we are better and more like Christ than we were. It makes God look great. It's like a telescope. You know, a telescope looks up in the sky and he sees this little object, not very big, and magnifies it. To many people, and even to ourselves, God can look like really small until the telescope of the Spirit comes and all of a sudden He begins to grow bigger and bigger and bigger that way. Glorified. Fourth. Assurance. Notice I didn't say insurance. Assurance. One of the things that the good works that we do and that the Spirit does within us is assures us of our faith in the catechism. Then also, that we ourselves may be assured of our faith by the fruits therein. Remember how Jesus ended the Sermon on the Mount? People were, you know, hanging on the edge of their seat. They were really excited about what he was saying because, first of all, he took down the religious leaders, and second of all, it was great material. And then he goes, Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will recognize them by their fruits. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? So every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus, you will recognize them by their fruits. When good works are a part of who you are, they assure you of your standing with God. They tell you more, I, I, I think even more convinced than your own thinking that you are one whom the Spirit has moved upon and has been working with and doing. You are recognizing that you are tapped into the vine in the John 15 uh, image. You are tapped into the vine and the vine is bearing fruit in you. The vine doesn't bear fruit into everything. He only, it only bears fruit into those who are branches that are there. That's kind of the image. So when you do things that are good, good works, they assure you. And you know, quite frankly, like, brothers and sisters, don't we need that? Part of our sinful nature is that we are so prone to question, am I really saved? Does God really love me? Is he going to strike me with lightning because of what I did yesterday? And we also have an enemy that's very good at accusing us. That's his name. He's accuser. And he says, did you see what you just did? How can the holy God of this universe love you after what you just did? And, you, and we are so filled with doubts and questions that we even question our own salvation. The Puritan forefather said, this is the dark night of the soul. One of the reasons you have a dark night of the soul. 
And we all go through it. Especially when you're young and you haven't uh, learned and you haven't grown. I mean, it's, it's just like kids do with their parents. Do you love me? Crawl up on your lap and they look at you and they take your, take your hands and move your face toward you so you're not watching something else. Do you love me? Do you love me? Or like uh, Tevia, Fiddler on the Roof. Do you love me? Do you love me? And what happens, it says, yeah. I washed your dishes, I clothed, I raised your kids. What do you mean, do you love me? See, good works are like that. They are meant to assure you that God does love you. Why? Because you know the only place they come from is from God. It's the only way they come is the Holy Spirit at work in your life. And therefore, if the Holy Spirit is at work in your life in that way, you are a child of God. And if you are a child of God, His steadfast love is upon you. And if your steadfast love is upon you, no matter what you... And, and Christ has died for you, your sins past, present, and future, no matter what you do, you are eternally or everlastingly tied to God. And you can, that's a tie that cannot be broken. Jesus said, nobody can snatch them out of my hand or my father's hand. Why? Because the father holds on to the children, not the children hold on to God. And that's what good works are for, to assure you that you are a child of God. And finally, it is... A highlight. Or I could say a floodlight. Maybe you've been there, maybe you've just seen pictures, and maybe you haven't at all. But have you ever been to Niagara Falls at night? If you have, and you can imagine, I mean, just to be there in the daytime to watch that water rushing over. It's absolutely amazing. But at night, all you would be able to do is hear the water falling. You'd never see how much there is until they throw a floodlight on it. And then you get to see it and hear it. And because of the floodlight, in the background of the darkness, it's even more magnificent than it was during the daytime. Because your eyes are focused in upon that. Or it's like when we were driving through our, our home area the other, other night, we came to a stoplight and I looked and there was somebody who still had their Christmas lights up. I said, well, the homeowners association is not going to like that. But also in the darkness of a, of a February day, they really sparkled and they brought some cheer in the midst of the darkness. That's exactly what your good works do in a world that's filled with darkness. Titus 2.10 talks about how your good, good works claim and yeah, make the claim of the doctrine of God. Paul, or Peter, in, again in that section on Peter that I read, says in verse 12, keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God 
of the day of visitation. What is the day of visitation? The day of visitation is the day when God comes into their midst. I mean, why you do good works is because as you do your good works, there are people whom God is working on. And he is going to visit them someday. And when he visits, they're going to remember what they saw in somebody who said, I am a follower of Christ. People are asking, is this thing called Christianity true? Let me not put it that way. But they look at somebody, especially somebody who they knew beforehand, who all of a sudden did a 180 and is living a different lifestyle, will not do the things they used to do, 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 do not talk the way they used to talk. And they say, well, I came to Christ. Is it true? Is it going to last? Is, it, is this really real? And your good works say to them, yep. And they highlight the grace of God that came to you. And it's part of evangelism to them. Now, they may never ask you, how in the world did this happen? But it's floating around in their mind. And as it floats around in their mind, someday they're going to get even more curious. And if they are a child of God, the Spirit is going to take that and use that to make them more and more curious why is it that Charlie has this new life? Did he go to AA? You know, did he see a psychiatrist and help him? No, no. And if you ever asked Charlie, Charlie said, no. I went to the best healer that there is in the world, Jesus Christ. And he's changed my life. And my good works show you the life that has changed. People are complaining about the state of the church in our day and age. And there are a lot of reasons, but one of them, I think, is because the church is no longer mirroring Christ to the culture. We have churchianity. We have Americanism. And we are no longer those who are light and salt into a culture. And you're watching the culture do exactly what a culture does without light and salt. I mean, this is not anything new. Go back to Rome. Go back to Greece. Go back to any number of cultures that did not have the effect of Christianity. As, as someone once said, if you are stranded on a desert island in the Pacific, you hope missionaries were there first because it's the difference between being invited to supper and being supper. That's the difference. The people we see in what's happening out here is nothing more than the natural person allowed to go out. And the church needs to be the people who are giving a floodlight into a different way, a new way. And to do it with respect and gentleness and love toward those who are out there. That's the other reason that the catechism says, why must we do good works? Because Christ is glorified in all of that. The final question deals, well, how about those who are unthankful and unrepentant? We kind of dealt with that last week. The unrepentant is the most hideous sin because without, without repenting, there is no salvation.
And they're just simply showing they're still the natural person. They're still following their own desires, their own lust, and they have no desire to change. And you don't see any of these reasons really working in their lives. And therefore, they are showing that their destiny is not a destiny of greatness, of eternal bliss, but of eternal woe. So, question I end with. It's a question I end with almost every time. How you doing? I mean, this is not just an academic talk. How are you doing in all of these? And if you're not doing well, maybe you need to talk to somebody. Or maybe you need to talk to someone. The first avenue is prayer. Prayer with an open Bible. And I would say prayer with an open Bible and an open catechism to think about what you need to do and where you are. Okay, I've been talking about good works. Next week we get to define what a good work is. Oh, excitement. I can just see you're all ready to go. Let's go. Let's pray. Our deepest desire, O oh Lord, is that you would be our greatest treasure. You have rescued us from ourselves, from our sin, from a, a despicable destiny. And you have also been at work to, re to form us into the living creation we are called to be. And we know that that will happen as you are our greatest desire and we look to you above all else. So Holy Spirit, come. Work in your people. Where we are weak in any of these reasons, strengthen us, O oh Lord, this week. Begin the work that needs to be done or continue it in such a way that when we come back next week, we will be more like Christ, at least to some degree. And Father, we ask you to do this not for our own sake, although that in itself is good. We ask you to do it, O oh Lord, so that you would be glorified and people would see you in us. They would be enamored of you because of us. And you would draw them into your kingdom by your spirit through your son. So we offer ourselves to you in this time to take what is gold and cement it into our hearts to take that which is fluff and let us forget it. But in all things, O oh Lord, to go from here willing to be changed and to change. For we ask it in Christ's name and all of God's people said, Amen.